Welcome to Wisdom and the Word Podcast, the show that not only answers your questions from God's Word, but equips believers with the foundational truths for their faith. We're excited that you've taken time to join us and hope that today's content is valuable to you. In today's episode, Pastor Wiley resumes his study through Hebrews chapter number one. Welcome back to the Tuesday broadcast of Wisdom in the Word. Today, we are continuing on in our study of the book of Hebrews. What a fantastic book Hebrews is. Uh, again, I put it next to the book of Romans in complexity, uh, but also in depth and what it declares about the person of Jesus Christ um, unparalleled in the New Testament because of its parallels with the Old Testament. What a great book uh, we're dealing with here in Hebrews chapter 1. We're looking at verses 5 to 14. We've already looked at verses 1 to uh, 4 in our text where uh, the Bible says, where the writer declares to us that Jesus is the final word. Now we pick up in verses 5 to 14, and we're sandwiched between the questions that are asked here at the beginning of the section and at the end of the section, which is, when did God say that? That's what we've entitled this particular section. When did God say that? Uh, you'll notice as he goes through this particular text, text, that he asked the question, when did God say? The Bible says in verse 5, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, that is God, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Um, that is, when did God say to the angels, thou art my son? And then you'll notice as the um, as the, the text ends, you'll notice in verse 13, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? So twice here in this little section, we have a rhetorical question, basically asking, when did God ask these things of the angels? And his goal here is to present Christ as better than the angels. This word better, again, appearing 13 times throughout the book. And he's going to, again, as we go through the book, he's going to set up something to contrast with Christ. And these contrasts that we're going to see is, um, here's Jesus, and then here's, oh, here's this person, or here's this offering, or here are these angels. And then in comparison, Christ is way better. Christ is way beyond it. There, Christ is the superlative. He's much more. So I think that's really the thought here uh, in Hebrews chapter number one as well in verses five to 14. Now, as we started walking through the uh, passage last week, we said that verse five actually deals with the worth of the son. Um, we see for unto the, which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Uh, we talk about who the Son of God is, there is only one eternal Son of God. And so we see the worth, we see who he is in verse number five. Then in verse six, we talk about his worship. And the Bible says, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. Now the angels are worshiping Christ. In chapter, in verse number five, he's worth more because he is the Son of God. He's never said to the angels, Today I've begotten thee. No, he said that to the son, exclusively to the son of God. That's his value. That's his worth. 
Then in verse number six, these same angels are worshiping him. And if the angels are worshiping Christ, then Christ must be better than the angels. And obviously, there's been some problem here in this particular culture or this particular time with people starting to elevate angels to the place of actual worship or placing them on the plane or maybe reducing Jesus to the same level as angels and worshiping him on the same plane. And so he's trying to make it very clear that these beings are not the same as the angels, that 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 Christ is better than these angels. And so um, we'll pick up here in verse number seven also. We looked at this last week. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his, his, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, again, in this particular verse, it talks about angels being ministers or servants. So we he makes it clear that the angels do the will of the Son, that they do the will of the Son. So if the angels are doing the will of the Son of God, uh, then that makes the will of the Son greater than the angels. How can they be his servants when when they can when they're on the same plane? And that just can't happen. The only way that you see that that the angels would do the will of Christ is if Christ was better. Then uh, we pick up here in verses 8 to 14, and uh, we'll kind of go through these uh, passages today. We said that there are seven quotations of seven Old Testament passages of Scripture as we've gone through here. Up to this point, we've seen four quotations uh, that help us. Uh, coupled together, uh, we've seen, um, again, one and two coupled together, three and four coupled together. Now we'll see five and six together, seven and eight together, and then uh, and then seven uh, all by itself. So uh, it'll kind of help us out as we go through to kind of see how they're coupled together. You'll notice in verses eight and nine, we see the fifth quotation, the fifth quotation here. This quotation is from Psalm 45 and verse number six, Psalm 45 and verse number six, and uh, we'll flip over there uh, real quick uh, this afternoon and get that. Psalm 45 and verse number six, the Bible says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Um, and let's read verse number uh, eight of our text where this quote is actually given. But unto the son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Uh, now, verse nine kind of goes along with this. It says, thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now, this fifth quotation, again, from Psalm 45, six, is set in contrast to the fourth quotation. Um, the 45th Psalm celebrates a royal wedding. That's what Psalm 45 is about. The poet addresses the first the bridegroom and then the bride. The word here quoted um, in this particular passage is the words here quoted form part of his address to the bridegroom. So when you're reading Psalm 45 and you read the psalmist's address to the bridegroom, that's what's taking place here in verse number eight to the bridegroom. Now, of course, the bridegroom, Jesus, we know is the bridegroom. We know that in the New Testament, that he's referred to as the bridegroom. Uh, in fact, uh, John the Baptist would call him um, the friend of the bride, but he would say that the bridegroom, Jesus would call himself the bridegroom. So again, when you're looking here, the words quoted here form part of this address to the bridegroom. Now, we can't be sure whether the bridegroom was a, a king of the northern or the southern kingdom. That is in Psalm 45. We don't know who the bridegroom was. But on balance, it seems more probable that he was a prince of the house of David. 
And so that would form, that would be a very clear picture or a very clear connection in Psalm 45. So when he says in Psalm 45, but unto the son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. What we're talking about in verses eight and nine is the wonder of the son, the wonder of the son. Who is he? Um, how, how is this possible that, that God the Father could say unto the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever? How could God speak to God? In fact, this is one of those statements that you look at and you wonder. Um, it's one of the same mysteries that Jesus used when he was talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. That is, how can you say that he's both the root and the branch of David? How can he be an offspring but also before him. And they could not answer that question. Now, what we know is the same thing here in this passage. The son of God is also God, the son. And that makes, again, clear sense to us as we look at Jesus, that Jesus is better. But the wonder of this is just, it, it's, it's mind boggling to think about the fact that Jesus the eternal son of God, the one who always has been God, always has been the son of God, at one point came into existence in human form and became a man and walked among, among us and became of the lineage of David so that he might have right to the Davidic throne. And of that kingdom and of that throne, there would be no end. But Jesus stepped out of glory in order to be able to come here and be humbled so that eventually he would be go to the cross and die for our sins, sit at the right hand of God, and later on receive that same glory that he divested of himself in order to be able to uh, forever sit on the throne of David. This is just a, you know, even thinking about it and saying that in my own mind, uh, even as I'm uttering those words, I'm just amazed and in wonderment at who God is and at who Jesus is. It's something that the human mind cannot fathom. The concept of the hypostatic union of God, the incarnation, God being robed in human flesh, both God and man uh, in the same in the same breath. Now, as you're looking here, of course, that's verse number eight. And again, this really debunks a lot of uh, false cultic theology that would simply say that Jesus Christ is not God. Uh, it seems very clear here from this text that the Hebrew writer intends for us to understand that Jesus is God when he says, but unto the son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness. Of course, the scepter um, is a picture of of his rule and his reign, um, of the omnipotence of, of Christ and of his rule. And then in verse number nine, it says, thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now, what about the fellows here in this verse? Who are, who has he been anointed with the oil of gladness <clears throat> above these fellows? Well, the immediate context here where the son's superiority over angelic beings has been asserted suggests that his companions are angels. So if we would say above thy fellows, we would have to say, well, he's been talking about angels better than the angels above thy fellows may indicate that we're still talking about angels. That would be really, um, really kind of natural, according with the passage. Now, while many commentators take this line, it's possible that the companions in this view are the many sons whom the firstborn is not ashamed to call his brethren. 
that's that's also a possibility that these fellows here in verse number uh, nine, it says, with the oil of gladness above thy fellows would, would look, if you look at chapter two, verses 10 and 11, the Bible says, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And again, notice in verse 11, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. All right, so the issue here, it could be these brethren or these many sons that we talk about in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. These people were designated the Messiah's partners or companions, and they share in the heavenly calling. Now, if that's the right way, if this is an angels and is speaking about uh, the companions, these sons, if this is correct, then the author's point is that while their joy is great because of their relationship to him, he is even greater. He is even greater. And so um, it could be referring to the oil of gladness. And again, scholars debate and talk back and forth about these things. But regardless, verses 8 and 9 are talking about the wonder of the Son of God, the wonder of who he is. Now, as we pick up in verse 10, verses 10 to 12, we see the sixth Old Testament quotation. And this comes from Psalm as well, Psalm 102. Psalm 102, uh, verses 25 to 27. Psalm 102, 25 to 27. And again, you can look that up uh, on your own and take some time to be able to study it. But in Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, we have a, the sixth quotation here in Hebrews chapter number one. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vessel, a, vault, a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. So this is closely and purposefully linked with the previous quote. So again, like I said, they're in couplets, uh, one and two together, three and four together, five and six together. So while five stands in contrast to four, five and six quotations are together. Again, together, these two citations, the, the two quotes that we see, the one from Psalm 102 in verses 10 to 12, and the other one that we see um, given to us from Psalm 45 in verses 8 and 9, these two citations together begin and end on the note of the Son's eternity. Notice it with me in verse 10. The Bible says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Now you can see the quotation here as we read through. It's very similar to what we read in Psalm 102 just a moment ago. Now, in, in parallel fashion, what we see here is a contrast between the mutability of angels, that is their ability to change, and the eternal, immutable, unchangeable character of the Son. That is, look at it with me. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. Everything that was made was made by God. Everything that was made was made by him. He's the one that fashioned it all. Verse 11, they shall perish. Everything that God has made, everything that God has made in the heavens and in the earth, have a, have a time limit. Uh, the suns, the moons, the stars, the earth, all those things will need to be recreated. They have a, a definite beginning and a definite end. Uh, even the grass, the grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. 
That is, the heavens are the works of God's hands. So when he says in verse 11, they shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall all act old as doth a garment, as a vesture. Shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. I mean, even the angels had to choose. And the angels, uh, when we talk about them, some of them were confirmed in the state of righteousness. Other of them uh, left and, and fell and followed after the devil. But what we know about them is that, that every being in the universe has the capacity for change, but God does not. He is, he is eternal, and as an eternal being, he is immutable. You and I will change. We change over the course of our lives. I don't know if you ever know if you've looked at high school photographs uh, recently. Um, there's a little bit of changes that's taken place. And the further you get from that day, the more different you look. In fact, so much so that somebody might throw up a picture of you and say, who is this person? And other people not be able to recognize you because we change. We change. We grow older. And all of us are in the process of continuous change. In fact, that's one of the glorious things about God, what the work that God does in us is that he changes us. We don't, in some ways, we don't want to be the same people that we used to be. But God is not, the, God is not that. God is not the same. So in verses 10 to 12, the focus here is on the work of the son, the work of the son. What did he do? He created everything. He made all things. And as he made all things, everything that he made, has an expiration date, except God himself. And when you look at God himself, God has no expiration date. So verses 8 and 9 focus on the wonder of the Son. Verses 10, 11, and 12 quote Psalm 102 and declare to us the work of the Son, what he did, what he made. And again, if the work of the Son of God was that he created all things, he certainly is God. And the Bible affirms that over and over again. Colossians would be another place where this uh, aspect of God, Colossians 1, would uh, share with us the same truth. And then in verses 13 and 14, as we close out chapter number 1 uh, of our text, we find our final citation. Our final quotation comes from Psalm 110 in verse number 1. And this brings us full circle in our quotations. Uh, in the quotations that we see, Psalm 110 in verse number 1 is the final quotation of, of verses 13 and 14. Uh, as we close out, the Bible says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make, mine, make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord said unto my Lord, now, again, in this particular text, we're going to see the winning of the son, the winning of the son. That is, Christ is a conqueror. He's a winner. Uh, eventually, all things will be subdued and all things will be put at his feet. All things will be subject to him. And so he says into verse number, in verse number 13, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, which of the angels are, are such a conqueror? such a victor, such a winner, that God would say unto them, sit here at my right hand, the place of power and majesty. Well, he wouldn't because the angels did not conquer sin. The angels did not conquer death. The angels did not conquer the grave. Christ did. And that is the point, the superiority, the better Christ, the winning of the son. And you'll notice he says, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The concept of enemies being thy footstool is that, one day there's going to come a day when every person will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, the Bible tells us this in Philippians chapter number two, uh, that uh, the Bible says uh, that God hath highly exalted him 
and given him a name which is above every name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, the scriptures are very clear, very abundantly clear, that there's coming a day when everyone will bow and the enemies of God will become his footstool. And that is, he will have conquered them and been victorious over them. And then he closes in verse number 14 with another thought about the ministering aspect of the angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? It's this thought of verse number 14 that's going to become the impetus to chapter number two, which opens with, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Verse number 14 tells us that the angels are ministering spirits, servants. They are sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. That is, they have a ministry aspect for all of those who are saved and know the Lord. They are ministering on their behalf. They have a job and a responsibility. And now it's going to start talking a little bit about our response uh, to this and this salvation that was given to us as we pick up in chapter number two. So again, as we look at verses five to 14, we would say, ask, ask the question, when did God say that? But we would answer the question with, well, God would never say that to an angel because Christ is better. His son is better than the angels, the worth of the son, the worship of the son, the will of the son, the wonder of the son the work of the Son, and the winning of the Son. In Hebrews chapter number 1, verses 5 to 14. Next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up with chapter number 2. We want to thank you for joining us today on this Tuesday edition of Wisdom in the Word. We hope this is helping you in your Bible study. If you have questions for our Thursday episode, we'd like to encourage you to send them to us so that we might be able to take them, add them to our list, and answer your questions. So we might be able to help you again in your understanding of the Word of God. Have a great rest of your day. God bless. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Wisdom in the Word podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, we invite you to support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing this show on your favorite podcast app and sharing something you've learned on social media. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope to see you next time on Wisdom in the Word.